call Reformation Sunday. We'll be talking about uh, prayer today and the Reformers and how they have spent time in prayer and emphasized prayer. Um, Reformed theology, rightly understood, is really an excitement about the gospel. Uh, And so the name of our church is not New Covenant Reformed Church. Uh, It's New Covenant Bible Church and uh, it's where we get our theology from, is from the Bible, and excitement about the gospel is what defines us. And when you think about the gospel, what do you think of? Well, you're going to define, of course, Christ Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, being raised three days later. But it's not simply theological truth, it's truth taught in the context of a church. For me, when I think of it, yeah, I think of those truths that became more and more clear to me as I lived longer, but it also was taught to me in the context of acceptance. And for me, that was in the church, especially in the youth group, where I was accepted. The only place I was accepted outside of my family, truly for who I was, right? Uh, Being excited to go back to a youth group and hear the message and worship. and, And it's a blessing to me to hear even some of our students now say that on Monday, they look forward to gathering on Wednesday with our youth group. Uh, The Lord has has blessed us with a, a great youth group. So we're talking about prayer today. I know that um, Keith, I believe, taught it this morning in, in his Sunday school class about prayer. Is that right, Keith? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Last week I thought he said that we were going to talk about prayer this week. Um, uh, but also Spencer has been teaching, Spencer Cinnamon has been teaching on Wednesday night's uh, youth group. He's been teaching on prayer, asking God for great things. So let's start today by asking God to help us understand his word. Lord, today we start with a very, very simple prayer. Lord, our prayer is that you would open our eyes, you would open our ears, you would open our minds, open our souls, open all that we are to understand and see wonderful things in your word. In your name we pray, amen. Well, stories of answered prayers are a great encouragement to any believer, We love hearing those stories. Uh, Similar to hearing the stories of faith in the Hebrews Hall of Fame, chapter 11. Of course, Jesus says we have to have great faith, and that's elaborated on in the beginning of the book of James. That tells us if you pray without faith, without believing you're going to receive it, well, you're not going to receive it. And you're doubting, and you're like a wave on the ocean, tossed back and forth. And it adds to it, in fact, you're unstable in all that you do. But some of the most touching stories of prayer end up being the prayers that we've prayed for our own children. Praying that God would bring a husband and a wife a child. We could go around the room and many parents could talk for a long time about the Lord's answer to their prayers. Or you could read in the book of Samuel that Hannah prayed for that child. You can look at the drama of Jacob and his two wives and two concubines or hurt their servants and and see that each of the kids' names are almost a response to the prayer lives of each of their moms. Uh, As Rachel, Jacob's true love, had her first child, Joseph, it says that the Lord heard her and had opened her womb. 
And you can look in Genesis 30 and see the names of each of these children being like honored and the Lord has taken away reproach and happy. All responses to, to prayer. I know that in my own life, the Lord has answered some prayers that I've prayed a long time ago and he continues to answer them. Solomon tells us in one of his books, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, to pray for neither poverty nor riches. Because if I'm poor, I'll be tempted to steal or to covet. And if I'm rich, I'm going to think I don't need God. I have seen the Lord answer that in my life. And that's comforting. Last night, I was at a friend's uh, birthday party. It was a neighbor. He had turned 50. And he uh, opened up the meal by, by praying, Lord, I thank you for the 50 years you've given me. And I pray I don't live 50 more. <laughs> um, of course, Christians are grateful for their lives, but life is, is hard, and what do we look forward to? We look forward to spending eternity with God. Reality, however, is that we know that not all of our prayers are answered with a yes. Paul specifically talks about a thorn not being removed. Spencer reminded me on Wednesday night that Jesus himself prayed in the garden for a cup to be removed, and what was the answer? No. He was praying in the will of the Father, and he got a no. Daniel, for three weeks, waited for an answer to a particular prayer. But there is a prayer that the Lord does answer every time. In Romans 10, 12, it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that's a quote from Joel chapter 2, and I've got this little smiley face in my notes right here, because when you go back to Joel chapter 2, where it says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, the next verse says that those who call on the Lord are those who have been called by the Lord. So if you're calling out to the Lord, it's because he has first called you. Isn't that a beautiful picture of how God has loved us? So we don't ever start with man's initiative in reaching to God like they did in the Tower of Babel. Whom we know is his son, Jesus Christ. He is our mediator. He is our priest. He is our propitiation, giving us access to God. Before I was even born, 2,000 years before I was born, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, knowing that I would repent of my sins. I want you to listen to Hebrews chapter 4, which summarizes Jesus as our mediator. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I need a clicker. Is there one around? You can advance the next screen while you're looking for that. We pray to God acknowledging Jesus alone is our mediator, giving access 
to the Father. We don't start with man's initiative. We start with God reaching out to us. He is our promised Savior. He is our mediator. Thank you very much, Dean. Sounds good. Is that better? All right. Here we are. I want you to imagine, though, that in your prayer life, all the churches are instructing you that your access to God is through your own prayers. And that was the context of the church 500 years ago. That it depended on your effort in reaching out to God. Let me tell you what my response is, would be. I'd be praying really hard. <laughs> Especially if there was this sickness going around, this plague running around for the past 150 years called the Black Plague. And death is looming at your door. But access to God is actually given freely. You don't have to earn it. We call that grace. And it is not earned in the church or the things the church would do. Now that still does apply to us today, even though Protestant evangelical churches are not teaching that we're going to help you earn your salvation. But sometimes we can overly depend on the church as opposed to knowing that we're going to stand before God on our very own. No pastor is going to speak up for you. The only person who could speak up for you is Jesus Christ. Well, in addition to your own prayers, though, 1,500 years ago, was the added requirement of the prayers of others that would help you have access to God. There wasn't an emphasis on Christ alone. It was on the emphasis of pastors and priests, they were called. Especially this one big guy named Papa. That's otherwise known as the Pope. Whose prayers would reduce your time in purgatory. This place that the church had made up for a, where you could make up for the remainder of your sins. Well, grace was then preached as a reward. But again, grace, the gospel, is free. But if it's a reward, then you're going to do all you can to be a part of the church with the wrong motives. Add to that, there's a man-made system of seven holy acts, which were called sacraments. These were, in addition to the baptism and the Lord's Supper, there were five other ones that were highly contended. There's a sixth one that was called penance, which had to do with repentance, but its emphasis was on doing penance due to a mistranslation in the Latin Vulgate. So Luther kind of went back and forth on that one, but that was unique to him. All the reformers emphasized two sacraments, which we call ordinances. Baptism as your entry point into the church and the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, the congregation only took the bread. The pastor or the priest would take the cup filled with wine. And even then, eventually they were like, that's not good enough if it actually turns into the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. We need to put a screen up so that people don't even see it. But in addition to those distorted sacraments they had, they had five others, ordination, marriage, 
confirmation, which is a public profession of faith, and last rites. Now, last rites are a thing that a, a priest would do, a pastor would do, right before you're to pass on to the next world, right before you die. They'll pray for you, call a blessing on you. Well, there's this thing going on called the Black Plague, and lots and lots of people are dying. A third of all Europe, it's estimated, would, had died. Now, that wasn't just a third across the board. It, was, it hit one city and not hit another. But if it hit your city, it's more like 50% mortality rate. That's a lot of people dying at one time who need last rites. There weren't enough priests to go around. So people are worried about their eternal security. So they change the rules. If the priest isn't around, just get a man to do it. Eventually they're like, well, it's still not enough. If a man can't do it, get a woman to do it. And they just kept changing it. Get a child to do it. Get anybody. People are starting to wonder, I thought a priest was supposed to do it. I thought this was important. So starting to question what the church at that time was teaching. In addition to that system of seven, seven holy acts, there was this system of indulgences where you would have cooperation with God to earn your way out of purgatory, to have less time in purgatory, accomplished through special pilgrimages, special certificates that you would give the church to help them build a church building, things you could pay for. And if you really want your best prayers heard, well, then you might as well just become a monk or a nun. Spend your whole life praying. Luther's taken his sin pretty seriously. So he does that. He becomes a monk in the early 1500s. But for him, the resounding theme was that forgiveness was foreign and grace was distant. Can you imagine that refrain in your head? Forgiveness is foreign and grace is distant. He was scared of God because of his own sin, highlighted in this one particular event of his where he was outside in a thunderstorm traveling. He was just scared to death. And so his prayer to him, for him, he prayed to this saint, they called it, Saint Anne, which was the special patron saint of the coal miners because his father was a coal miner. Save me, Saint Anne. I'll become a monk if you save me. And that's what he did. He had become a monk. And then he went on a special pilgrimage to Rome as a monk. And there he climbed these special stairs that were marble. And he crawled the whole way up on his knees, kissing the, knee, kissing the uh, stairs, praying the whole way up. These were the stairs that a long, long time ago, no one remembers when, as long as anybody can know, remember, were moved from Jerusalem to Rome. These are the stairs of Pontius Pilate that Christ would have walked up where Christ would have bled on, and there's blood stains on those marble steps that are now covered in wood because they're so worn out, they wanted to make sure there were stairs for generations to come. And Luther got to the top of these stairs, and he felt nothing. And he saw around him all kinds of immorality in the church that was worse in Rome than even back home. So being a monk... And for Luther and others, it just didn't help. Going on a holy pilgrimage didn't help. What was it, simply and clearly, that enabled Luther to finally pray, knowing that he had access to God? Well, simply and clearly, 
He read the Bible. About a year before he posted those 95 theses in 1516, this guy named Erasmus printed and published the first Greek New Testament on the printing press. He wasn't the first one to print it. He was the first one to print it and to publish it. And it had Latin and Greek on parallel columns. So if you could read both of those, you could discern what was truth. How were the translations maybe messed up a little bit or a lot? And so Luther read finally in Psalm 22, where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he realized that means that if Christ was forsaken, that my sins, Luther's sins, my sins, your sins, anyone who confesses faith in him were on the cross. Christ didn't have any sin. And so that was the truth of the gospel that helped Luther to realize that I don't carry that weight on my back. Christ did for me. And he had this phrase that helped him live his life that was at the same time I am justified, I am also a sinner. That's a reality in everybody's lives. I am justified, but I have repented of my sins. I am repenting of my sins. We are on that narrow path. And so on October 31, 1517, 12 years after Luther had become an, became a monk, he was a lecturer and a teacher in Wittenberg, and he decided to nail 95 points of debate on the church doors. You can see that on your right. Those aren't the original doors, but it's the original spot. The church had burned down at some point in the past 500 years. Luther nailed 95 points of debate, 95 theses, which was a common place to put stuff. It wasn't like putting something on our church doors. It would be like putting it on the bulletin board. And it was for academic debate. On the left there, you see a, a picture of the University of Wittenberg. I was there about 10 years ago, took a picture of, of part of their buildings. And so I, I say that because the context of him posting these 95 points of debate was for academic dispute. It was, it was formed in the way that a doctoral thesis would be. Well, students are wonderful. Can't have any teachers without students, right? So one of his students decides to take him down they were posted in Latin. No one could read it. Take them down, translate it into German, bring it to a printing press, and distribute it. Eventually, pretty quickly, it reaches all over the place. It reaches those in Rome. This is a big deal. He's attacking their system of indulgences in particular. And one of his arguments is, Luther hasn't, he's growing in his understanding of the gospel. But his first attacks are kind of light, okay? And he says, hey, if, for the sake of argument, the Pope can empty purgatory with his prayers when we pay money for the indulgences for him to do that, why on earth doesn't the man just do it for free? He's not becoming very popular. But not just with the clergy, but also with the people. If your system of assurance of salvation is based on prayers like indulgences, all of a sudden he's taking the rug out from under your feet. You need a little bit more of, of a solution. You need the gospel. Well, three years later, Luther is excommunicated in 1520. He takes this excommunication letter, gathers around a fire with some students, and burns it publicly. He is not ashamed. You know his, eternity, his uh, eternal security comes from Christ. 
He writes this little booklet called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, where now he's not only attacking the indulgences, he's attacking the sacramental system that they have, saying that it's only two for him, two and a half. Later on, it ends up being two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Six months later, Luther is called to try. He's called to appear to trial in Rome. Now, going to Rome under persecution of the church at the time wasn't, wouldn't end well. He'd probably be sent right to jail and be burned at the stake through a false trial. Through God's favor and some political influence that Luther has, the trial is moved to Germany in this place called Worms at a council which they call the Diet, where we get that term, Diet of Worms. As a result of this trial, he is declared an outlaw, which means if you want to kill him, nobody will prosecute you. And so at this point, Luther goes into hiding for a year, and he translates the Bible, into the New Testament, into German. Then he goes back to Wittenberg, continuing to teach, to pastor, and to write. At this point, what I want to highlight is the three elements that Luther would emphasize and that all the reformers would emphasize, which is growing in Christ through the word, through the two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and prayer. This was the heartbeat of the Reformation. They emphasized the word rightly preached. Ligon Duncan, in an article called Ordinary Means of Growth, then talks about the two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, being confirming sanctifying and assuringly effective in what they accomplish, which is for us an assurance of salvation, being reminded of Christ's death on the cross. And then also, of course, prayer. And Luther and all the reformers would emphasize prayer. And if you read any of their catechisms, you're going to find an emphasis on the Lord's Prayer. But today I want to look at the prayer of Psalm 119. So you can turn there in your Bibles to Psalm 119. As we're turning there, I want you to know that when you read any of the Reformers, what you find is that they're all quoting. They're quoting each other, okay? They're in communication with each other. But they're also quoting a man named Augustine, who lived a thousand years prior to them, about 400 A.D. And Augustine was a very effective preacher with good theology on our salvation. You can read his work called The Confessions. His biography is really a prayer to God. And as Augustine preached through the Psalms, he skipped Psalm 119 because he said it was just too deep, but at the same time just so simple. There was nothing to preach on, he said. It was just read it, just pray it. Eventually, his parishioners did ask him to preach on it, I guess, sections at a time. It's like 173 verses or something. If I could summarize this psalm, Psalm 119, in a single line, I would summarize it like this. God, help me to love, obey, and honor your word. More accurately, though, point number three today, I would say it like this, that we should pray for God to help you love Obey and honor him by loving, obeying, and honoring his word. I want to make sure we have the right perspective and not make the Bible the fourth member of the Trinity. Besides, that would be bad math, right? So let's look at Psalm 
119. Starts out by telling us that, well, let's read the whole thing first, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The very first word in this psalm is blessed, which describes anybody who has faith in God, whether they're an Old Testament saint or a New Testament Christian. We are blessed by God. doesn't mean we don't have sorrow at the same time. And we're blessed by God because we're blameless, because we're walking in the law of the Lord. And we are joyous when we are on that narrow path. This is how the very book of Psalms starts out, saying that we are blessed who do not walk according to the way of the world, who are not, as Tim mentioned in his discipleship class this morning we're not scoffers we don't scoff at the word of God we don't go with those who do but instead what our delight is in the law of the Lord while Psalm 1 tells us how not to walk Psalm 119 tells us how to walk who walk in the law of the Lord and we walk in his law we are blessed Indeed, that is how Jesus started out his first public sermon in the Sermon on the Mount with the refrain of, blessed are those who. And those who is you. That's every Christian is somebody who is blessed by God. And our way is blameless. I want to spend some time looking at this word blameless. What does the Bible in four or five passages, mean when it talks about being blameless. One of the first times we see this is when God calls Abraham in Genesis 17. He says, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. This is one of the characteristics of God's people is to be blameless. So in praying for that, what does that mean? This is what God told Satan in the outer courts, I believe, of heaven. I don't think Satan was in the throne room when he was talking to Satan about Job. Have you considered my servant Job upright in all he does and blameless? I think a good definition of being blameless is found in Psalm 15. Turn in your Bibles with me to the short Psalm 15. And in Psalm 15 question is asked, who will dwell on your holy hill? Psalm 15, verses 1 through 5, listen to this. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly. And it goes on, I believe, to give us the definition of it. And does what is right, speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. 
in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Turn over then to Psalm 19, just four chapters to the right. Psalm 19, we won't spend much time here. Rob looked over this this past summer. Psalm 19 has a lot in common with Psalm 119, focusing on loving God by loving his word and responding to it appropriately. Verses 7 through 9 use a lot of the same words and synonyms that Psalm 119 does for the Bible. It is the law, it is the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, his rules. This is something that as a Christian we respond to as if this is God's love letter to us. But it's not just a letter of comfort. It's not just a Bible that has comfort in it. Verse 11 says that by these words we are warned. And we take them very, very seriously. Then in verses 12 through 13, I believe we have two categories of sins. Now, Putting sins in categories can be pretty dangerous. It can be called justification for my own sins and rationalizing it away. And no doubt, all sin is equal in that it is forgiven by God. All sin is equal in that it separates you from God. But not all sin is equal in its consequences. Indeed, you can look at Numbers 15 and see these categories of intentional and unintentional sins. But here in Psalm 19, it talks about being declared innocent from hidden faults. Lord, help me with the sins that I don't even know that I have. Likely other people know you have these sins, right? (laughs) They see your faults, even though we don't see our own blind spots. But then verse 13 goes on to say, Keep back your servant from presumptuous, that is intentional sins, sins of the high hand. May they not have dominion or rule over me then you will be what? Blameless. They will not have dominion over me, as Romans 6.14 says. Sin does not have dominion over the life of a Christian. We think of 1 John saying we don't make a practice of sinning in our lives. What is the characterization of your life is we're on that narrow path. Let's look at the New Testament categories of sins. Look at Colossians 3. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. On one of our uh, mission trips to Chattanooga, Keith had showed me this. That before it tells us to put on Christ, before it tells us to put on the new self, being renewed in the image of its creator, it tells us to put some things to death, and to put some things away. Now those two are synonyms. Okay, What are we to put away? Verse 8 says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and crude language from your mouth. Don't live inconsistently by walking like that. Put these things away and put them off. Synonyms. But verse 5 says there are some things you are to put to death. Or Ephesians says 
This categories of sins should not even be named among you. Should not be a hint of them. And what is the list here? Verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That is, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and covetousness. All of these are idolatry. John Owen would say about this, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. This is especially what we have to put to death. I appreciate David Platt, who has done this series called Secret Church, where he teaches for about six hours in a row. He's a very good teacher. And I remember him teaching on sexual purity and abstaining from the desires of this world, and he said it very clearly. He said, God's solution for lust is sex inside of the bounds of marriage. And so that means this isn't a verse that is directed only at men. It's directed at men and women. And if you're single, what does that mean? That you're to wait until you're married. Though no doubt, at the appropriate seasons, pursue somebody to marry. Though again, at the proper season. Song of Solomon says three times. One example is chapter 2, verse 7. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. But during the Reformation, they very much emphasized family life. Luther did emphasize the love of a husband and a wife. Now, the Catholic Church at the time was pretty inconsistent in the sense that there was one of the seven sacraments was marriage. Then they also promoted, for the, like the previous thousand years, the church had promoted celibacy being somebody who was single. And in fact, the priests and the monks were people who did not get married so they could spend extra time with prayer. That's what your salvation was dependent upon, your efforts. So you were a more holy person in the sense when you were single. But there was a problem in the church because the pastors and the priests were getting fined. They got tickets for having children out of wedlock. That was the consequence, and it was very, very common. For these pastors and priests, they obviously were human. And Luther's advice was, stop paying the fines, and instead, get married. And so, the Reformation wasn't just about changing theology. It had real practical emphasis in the life of the church. And so now, people are being encouraged not to go into a monastery for the purposes of praying and earning your salvation. Christ has given it to you freely. But there's a problem with releasing your vows. You made those vows for life, prosecutable with consequences and laws. So you couldn't just walk out, although Luther did eventually renounce his own monkhood. But Luther was responsible for organizing a lot of the things in Wittenberg and on this one occasion, there was this man who was going to deliver some herring to a nunnery where all these nuns were, which is a kind of fish that Europeans like. Americans just don't like it. Um, but they were delivering 12 barrels of, of these, these fish, probably salted herring. And this man would deliver them. And then on the way back, he'd, he'd come back with 12 empty barrels. On this one occasion, he put 12 nuns inside of those barrels and smuggled these nuns out. They were all willing and wanted to 
renounce their vows, but they just couldn't do it. And where were these nuns delivered? Delivered to Luther. He was to be responsible for putting them back into society. Three of them were young enough to go back to their families. The other nine, if you were a friend of Luther's, it was good news, and you were single. He was going to arrange marriages. By about two years into it, there was still one lady left. Her name was Catherine von Bora. She was pledged to be married to this one guy. He was finishing his studies, but he came back home, and the family met her and didn't like her. So he married somebody else. So that left this one woman, Catherine von Bora, to be married. She was a bold woman. She said, look, I want to marry this, this other dude, or I want to marry Luther himself. She's a bold lady. Luther went back home, joked about it with his dad. He said, his dad's like, no, don't joke about this. I want grandchildren. <laughs> I don't care if you're 42 and she's 26. You should get married. And so Luther gets married. And he emphasizes, and we get a lot of models of um, conversations for families around the dinner table. It's an important part of the Reformation. That worship isn't just done in the church, but it's done in the family. And that's what their catechisms were written for, for dads and moms to teach their children. Yes, we use it in the church, but that's what it was for. And so being blameless is following God's will, putting to death especially these sins of sexual immorality. Certainly, though, we, we go to Jesus Christ for all of our sins. And I want to read to you one of the way the Bible concludes talking about blameless in the second to last book of Jude. You can just listen to this. His conclusion says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jesus Christ is the one who is in our stead. He is the one that has taken the punishment for our sins. He is the one who passes on to us perfect blamelessness, the perfect righteousness of Christ. That is what we are to pray for. Going back now to Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless. Yes, you're on that narrow path, but you're also in Christ. And that gives us an assurance of salvation. And we walk in the law of the Lord. Moving to verse 2. It says, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. What do those testimonies have in mind especially is the Ten Commandments. John Calvin has about a hundred pages in his Institutes of the Christian Religion that are very devotional on the Ten Commandments. Meditating on the Ten Commandments is something that we never leave as we're convicted by our own sins. And we seek the Lord with our whole heart, as Jesus tells us to seek him first. And what does the Shema say in Deuteronomy 6? Hear, O Israel, Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord God with what? All your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all that you are. Verse 3, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. So to be clear, you're not, just on the narrow path, you're also not on the broad path at the same time. 
being somebody who's hypocritical. Verse 4 says that we should pray to obey God's commands diligently. We should not be lazy in our pursuit of holiness. We have a responsibility to meditate on God's word. We should keep watch over our own souls diligently. And that's going to happen in times of prayer. And we never stop being lazy and being diligent to take the log out of your own eye till the day we die. Verse 5 says we're to pray that we would be steadfast in keeping his statutes, that we would be faithful to the very end, because too often we're not steadfast. And if you read between the lines here, why is he praying that he would be steadfast? Because too often we're not steadfast. About five years ago, I was reading through and praying through Psalm 119, and I was pretty discouraged because I'm just not that man. I'm not that Psalm 119 man as you read it where it says, oh, I keep all your statutes. And I'm like, you know, who keeps all of his statutes? Well, you read the last verse of Psalm 119, number 176. Someone told me to read that. It says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Now it's saying, God, you seek me. Because I can only seek you in response to you seeking me as you've revealed yourself by your spirit in your word. And we pray that God would give us his favor to seek him. Verse 6 says that I would to pray that I would not be kept, that I would that I would not be put to shame. That my eyes, of course, would be fixed on his commandments, and that is the commandments in all sixty-six books of the Bible. We want to pray that we're not put to shame. I want to read to you a letter that Henry Bullinger wrote to his son going to college in 1553. He had 10 points. And here is a painting. Here's a painting of Henry Bullinger. This is from like the 1600s. Everybody can see that. It's a picture that I found when I was on my church history tour in Wittenberg in Melanchthon's house. And it's a, pair, it's a set of scales with Luther's Bible on one side weighing it down and all the other authority and things in the church on the other side. In the back you have Henry Bullinger who was a disciple and follower of Zwingli in Zurich. Henry Bullinger is somebody who was more influential than Calvin was during that time. Wrote lots and lots of letters. In the background are people like Martin Luther and Calvin and probably Zwingli. We don't know much about um, Henry Bullinger because a lot of his works weren't translated into English until more recently. Uh, but he was very, very influential. I want to read to you about six of the points that he said to his son going off to college. Four of them emphasizing prayer. Number one, he said, fear God at all times. Remember that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Number two, humble yourself before God and pray to him alone through Christ, our only mediator and advocate. 
Number three, believe firmly that God has done all for your salvation through his son. Pray above all things for strong faith, active in love. Number five, about being protected from shame. Pray that God may protect your good name and keep you from sin, sickness, and bad company. The beginning of the Gospels, we see that Jesus grew in favor with God and man. In your life and in your interactions with the world, we need to pray for God's favor. We need to pray for God's grace in the eyes of man, that we would not be put to shame. Ultimately, that we would be able to keep the Lord's name holy and represent him as holy. Last two verses say, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. When we praise the Lord in the assembly of the saints, we are transformed even while we sing. While we sing these songs, while that congregational prayer that today Rob led, it transforms us. I'm paying attention very astutely to these pastoral prayers every week, whether they're five minutes or ten minutes, whatever it is, because I know that it is very effective in my life. It's part of a prayer that we are all praying together. It's not one man praying for us. We're all praying together. And there is a hedge of protection around New Covenant Bible Church that God has ordained for every local church. And I want those prayers. I want to be prayed for, and I want to pray for those people in our church. Finally, verse 8 says, Do not utterly forsake me. And we end where we began. What did Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am not forsaken because Christ has been forsaken for me. As we were reminded at the beginning of Mark last week, Jesus started out in the outer edges. Sorry, the leper started out in the outer parts of town being forsaken. But in the end, who was the one that was forsaken? Who was the one that couldn't go into the towns? It was Christ. So these are the things that we are called to pray for. And my hope for you this week is to take the bulletin or open up your Bible to Psalm 119 and pray through these first eight verses. Really, for the past four weeks, I've been doing our call to worship. I've been reading one of these paragraphs. There's 22 paragraphs in Psalm 119. Each of them is a, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But they're broken up into short paragraphs uh, for, for you to read through. I'm going to continue to do that uh, for a while, and my encouragement to you is to do the same in your own personal, personal walk. So the Reformation not only focused on the word rightly preached, they focused on prayer, and they focused on, at the same time, the two sacraments, which today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I get those four men to come up right now and help us deliver these elements to the body. transformed the Lord's 
transform the Passover into the Lord's Supper, where we are to remember the tenth plague, where there was a deliverance of that angel of death that passed over that door, and whoever had the, the blood of the lamb or the goat was spread over uh, that doorpost was covered. Their firstborn would live. And so similarly, are we delivered, especially from that slavery of sin? But we're not just to remember the tenth plague. I think we're also to remember the first plague, where Moses turned water into blood, and Jesus improves upon that in his first miracle, changing water into wine as these elements here represent and remind us of Christ's death and resurrection. He said to do this in remembrance of him. Not just remembering his death on the cross, but remembering that perfect life that he lived for three and a half years that we're preaching through in the Gospel of Mark right now. And those vessels that Jesus used to turn water into wine, those six vessels... They weren't the old wine vats that were empty. They were vessels for purification. He said, fill those up, which represents that I have been purified by the blood of Christ. That blood, of course, represents his death. It's not just his bleeding, but it represents his death. And we do this until he comes back again, because Christ is indeed alive. And so we take this, remembering that, we take this truly, we're going to drink this non-alcoholic wine, and this cup that represents the new covenant. We're going to eat this bread. And as we really partake of it physically, so are we truly spiritually in Christ. So take about 60 seconds and just think about the ministry of Christ. Think about the word that was preached to you today. Think about the word that's been preached to you over the past couple weeks, and think about your own salvation. After about 60 seconds of silent prayer, John will lead us in a prayer for the bread.